Summer of 2020, how could any of us forget the black squares, the violent riots? Riots are the voice of the unheard, is what we were told by corporations, by government officials, by activists, even your pastor and some of your favorite Bible study leaders were promoting things like white fragility, Ibram X. Kendi's how to be an anti racist. How did all of this happen? The DEI, the ESG, the programs based on racial essentialism and this idea that systemic racism and white supremacy are the biggest problems that America is facing today. Well, none of this stuff happened in a vacuum. It actually has an extremely long and complex history going back at least half a century. Today, we've got Christopher Rufo. He is the author of the new book, America's Cultural Revolution, How the Radical Left Conquered Everything. And specifically today, we talk about things like how the ideas of critical race theory have infiltrated our public school system, our academia, our corporations, almost every single institution and industry. But this really goes for almost every progressive idea. He's going to tell us where all of this stuff comes from, help us wrap our heads around it so we can courageously push back against the destruction that we have seen it bring over the past several years. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Good Ranchers. Go to GoodRanchers.com. Use code Allie at checkout. That's GoodRanchers.com, code Allie. All right, guys, happy Monday. Before we get into that conversation, just a couple things. First, it's Monday, so just a reminder to do the next right thing in faith with excellence and for the glory of God, no matter what that is, big or small, no matter what you're feeling, whether you are scared or you feel alone or you feel intimidated or you just feel like everything is mundane and nothing matters, do the next right thing. Do the next right thing in faith with excellence and for the glory of God. God. Um, All right. That's one thing I wanted to say. Then I just wanted to give you a preview of some of the things that we'll be talking about this week. Tomorrow, we are going to be talking about something that I've been saying that I wanted to talk about for a long time. We're going to be talking about two things. One of the things that I've said that I've wanted to talk about for a while is romance novels and the toxicity of female romance novels and how I personally think that that is helping destroy marriages and actually destroy people's perception of themselves, perception of reality, what life should look like, but also really damaging relationships because it's setting up such awful expectations and also how it's kind of a form of pornography. So we're going to go through some examples of that and why I think that this is really destructive specifically for the women that it's targeting. But on the flip side of that, I also want to talk about a toxic message that men are being fed from the likes of people like Andrew Tate. We referenced this a little bit last week, but we're going to get into it because I think some people on the right, maybe well-intentioned or confused about Andrew Tate, the kind of person that he is, and even the message that he conveys. So I've got a message for both men and women, masculinity and femininity tomorrow that I think that y'all are really, really going to like um, and want to share. And then today, you'll notice that we, when we talk to Chris Rufo, we mostly talk about how this kind of idea of critical race theory and racism, you know, white supremacy, all of this stuff infiltrated 
the mainstream through academia, but we don't really touch as much on things like ESG and corporations, CEI, as we've talked about several times before, but we are going to get into that even more in some recent revelations about these things um, with one of your favorite guests, one of my favorite guests, and that's Justin Haskins. So that will be on Wednesday. So if you notice that that part of this conversation was missing, we only had so much time and so much to talk about. But I just wanted to note that. So we have a lot of great episodes coming out this week. Um, as you can tell, I'm still remote. So it sounds a little bit different, looks a little bit different. Thanks for bearing with us. Next week, we will be back in studio. Everything will look normal. Um, all right. I think that's all I have to say. If you love this podcast, leave us a five-star review wherever you listen. That would mean a whole lot to us. And uh, I guess I can go ahead. I'll just go ahead and I'll read our uh, first ad for the day before we get into the fascinating conversation um, with Chris Rufo. And that is Carly Jean Los Angeles. All right, I'm wearing Carly Jean Los Angeles because duh, because I always am, because this is just basically my uniform. Everything from them is so comfortable. It's so well made and it fits me in every stage of life. I am eight months pregnant right now. And I am wearing something that I wore when I was not pregnant at all, because everything that they have is so versatile. It's so comfortable. I'm a very like basic, simple person, a simple person when it comes to fashion. And I love that I can mix and match simple pieces with Carly Jean Los Angeles in a way that just makes my life so much less complicated. And I love supporting a company that supports all the values that you and I have. They're pro-life, they're Christian, they're standing for the principles that we have. And they have really, really awesome, high quality clothing. Their entire basics line is made in the America, uh, in America, by the way, which is really cool. Go to carlyjeanlosangeles.com. Use promo code Allie B for 20% off carlyjeanlosangeles.com code Allie B carlyjeanlosangeles.com code Allie B. Chris Rufo, thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Tell us about your book, which is coming out tomorrow, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, my book, America's Cultural Revolution, is officially released tomorrow, but uh, we just heard this morning it's already the number one bestseller across all categories on Amazon. And the premise wow. of the book is quite simple. I take the chaos that was unleashed in the summer of 2020 with the George Floyd riots, critical race theory, then gender ideology in schools, and I peel back the onion to just say, where did this come from? How did this happen? How did all of a sudden uh, all of our institutions seem to be in very quick order captured by these radical left ideologies. So I did the deep dive, went into the archives, and I, I really peel back 50 years of history, showing how the left conducted their long march through the institutions, and what ideologies, what ideas, what concepts, and specifically what people are responsible for the mass institutional derangement we've seen over the last few years. So for the average person, it has seemed really quick. Maybe if you're not paying attention to politics at all, it seems like since 2015, like Trump was the impetus for all of this. Maybe for those who have been paying attention a little bit longer, perhaps they would say 2008. Maybe some people would say 9-11. But a lot of people would say the past, somewhere in between the past five to 20 years, things have gotten increasingly crazy with an acceleration in the past few years. But it sounds like what you're saying is that this goes back a lot further than most people realize, right? 
Yeah, that's right. So, you know, what we have in the late 1960s in the United States were um, mass uh, urban rioting. You had left-wing revolutionaries that were promising to overthrow the state through violence. They were planting bombs in places like the U.S. Capitol building and detonating them. They were assassinating police officers in cities like New York to make political statements. Uh, they were kidnapping uh, innocent Americans and holding them hostage to achieve political goals. And the revolutionary ideology of that time failed in the 60s and, late, and early 70s. Um, the American public really just was revolted by this, this, these displays of violence. But the same people, the same ideologies, the same principles that were driving that movement then went underground. They started first mm. to get into the academic system and higher education, universities, and then slowly started conquering institution after institution, masking themselves in critical race theory, masking themselves in so-called diversity, equity, and inclusion. But what I found by going back into the history is that the lessons that I uncovered in my investigative reporting about critical race theory in schools were almost identical, minus some euphemistic language, to the revolutionary pamphlets of the 1960s. So the question is, how did the left-wing radicals get their ideas from the furthest fringes of society into the kindergarten classroom of your kids that's a question worth asking. And if we want to get it out of our classrooms, if we don't want our kids to be indoctrinated into CRT and other ideologies, I think it's important to understand how these things work. Yeah. So going back to the 60s and 70s and some of these riots that you're talking about, again, someone who has been paying attention to politics or history for a while would know that. But I would say the average person doesn't. For the average person, the summer of 2020 is was it is the worst that America has ever been, the most divided it's ever been, the most scared people have been for the future of the country, for the safety and future of their children. Um, but you're saying the 1960s kind of mirrored that division and that violence and that chaos that we saw today. So tell us specifically, what are some of the similar ideas and why do they always have the same result of violence and anarchy? Well, it's a great question. And the answer is pretty interesting. If, if you look at all of the buzzwords that were in the New York Times, that were in all of the left-wing press, that was repeated ad nauseum on MSNBC, systemic racism, police brutality, white supremacy, et cetera, et cetera. These were all terms that were developed by left-wing radicals such as Herbert Marcuse, Angela Davis, the Black Panther Party, the Black Liberation Army, and the Weather Underground in the 1960s. They had the idea that if there's any disproportionate outcome between different racial groups, that means that the whole system is racist and operates to oppress people. Um, and that critical race theory style idea of dividing people into oppressor and oppressed based on their skin color. Um, comes from the neo-Marxist revolutionaries of that time. And so it's a really fascinating thing. As I was watching 2020 unfold, and then I did the research for the book, I realized that this was just really a repetition. It was almost as if the left-wing activists and Antifa and Black Lives Matter were reenacting the late 1960s. And so digging into it, you realize that there's, in some sense, nothing new under the sun. But in another sense, you see how these ideas gained power. And that's the difference. In the late 1960s, the major corporations, the major media, even the New York Times, rejected the violent radicals and revolutionaries of the time. 
But in 2020, mm -hmm. all of the Fortune 100 companies, all the K through 12 schools, all the universities, all of the other prestige institutions and the federal government, um, they all supported, they literally bent the knee to BLM. And the BLM activists themselves say that Black Lives Matter, BLM, is a reincarnation of the black liberation movement of the 1960s that sought to overthrow the government of the United States, to, to squash the constitution and install a Marxist-Leninist revolutionary vanguard into power. And so um, we're dealing with something that is not spontaneous, it's not random, it's part of a 50-year plan that's been executed patiently and then suddenly exploded into American life. So it just didn't stick in the 1960s, really. And I think, I mean, I'm sure you explore this uh, further in your book, but there are a variety of reasons for that, I think. I think the country was more Christian, was more conservative, was more patriotic, was more cohesive. So it was kind of easy to push back against what was seen as kind of these radical fringes. And it wasn't politically expedient at the time either. And it wasn't lucrative at the time to support people like Angela Davis or people on the side. So what was it about academia then? Because you said that this stuff started infiltrating the colleges. Why was it academia that welcomed these radical fringes with open arms instead of joining the rest of society, which said, you know what? no, we don't want to be for your racist essentialism and your radicalism. Why did academia accept it and then teach it? I think that it's really a psychological question or a social psychological question. If you look at academics as a whole, um, they're utopian. They believe in the possibilities of the mind, of reshaping society according to their ideas. And they've always had a weak spot for revolutionary and utopian ideologies. Like, Marxism, socialism, far left radicalism, kind of critical race theory, et cetera. And so it was already a welcoming environment for some of those ideas. But the second point, and I think this is really important, is that academics by temperament and academic administrators also by temperament are fundamentally weak people. And, and, and that sounds harsh, but I think in my analysis of the history and then my own experience working in higher ed reform, I think it's true. So that the average academic administrator, even one who says, you know what, bombing buildings, assassinating police officers, threatening to violently overthrow the government is wrong. They know that morally. They know that intellectually. But temperamentally, they're unable to resist the people within their mm -hmm. ranks who push those ideas. And so what happens in academia is a dynamic of the most intolerant, the most aggressive, the most dominant personalities, even if they represent a small percentage were able to dominate the intellectual and the administrative environment. In the late 1960s, in the early 1970s, they made their coup. And then over the course of the next 50 years, what they did was consolidate their power, hire more people who shared their beliefs, push out any conservatives, any moderates, any classical liberals, silence, intimidate, choke off the supply of academic jobs for those kind of people. To the point where now you have in many academic departments, even in large public universities, 25 to 1, 50 to 1, even 100 to 1 liberals to conservative. And among those, let's say, 100 liberals, you have approximately a quarter of those in the humanities that are out and out self-declared Marxists and, and radicals. And they set the tone. They dominate the discourse. Um, and they've really uh, achieved that in academia first. And then once they consolidated their power there, they started moving out into the other institutions of society. 
Okay, quick pause to tell you guys about our next sponsor for the day, and that is another podcast from Focus on the Family. It's called A Crazy Little Thing Called Marriage. This is hosted by Dr. Greg and Aaron Smalley. They've already reached millions of married couples through their practice, through their books, events, and more. So this is a trusted source on marriage. They've seen so much. They've seen everything when it comes to what married couples go through, both the big and the small. They want to make sure that your marriage is not just surviving, but that it's really thriving. So whether it's communication or conflict resolution or intimacy issues, all those things that you might know that you need help on, but you don't know even where to start, this is a really easy way to gain Christian wisdom about helping your marriage be the best and the most God-glorifying that it can be. So download a crazy little thing called marriage or uh, subscribe to it. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite listening source. New episodes drop every Monday. So crazy little thing called marriage. Download now. And now we see, I mean, every day I get a message that says I'm in X industry. And as you know, it's progressive. I'm a social worker. I work in some kind of government office. I am a therapist. I'm a doctor. And it's just kind of like a given at these point, at this point that all of these institutions have become captured and to be a conservative or to just be heterodox and have different opinions about gender or whatever or race is seen as something that you kind of have to suppress or that you have to be ashamed of. And even like your HR manager will will tell you, hey, I know you don't agree with what's being said, but you just kind of need to be quiet if you want to keep your job. Um, And so what are some things over the past 50 years that have accelerated the infiltration of these radical ideas from the streets to academia and then to the rest of these industries that are now totally dominated by this stuff? It's a brilliant question. And, you know, a couple of years ago, when I first started doing this investigative reporting, I looked at companies like Bank of America, Target, Verizon, um, you know, Wall Street firms, all of these large corporations that were, you know, the essence of capitalism, literally the Bank of America. And Bank of America, mm-hmm. for example, was teaching that the United States is systemically racist, that white people should bear historical guilt for, for crimes committed by people who share their ancestry. Um, that, that, you know, America was irredeemable, that they should start having uh, separate uh, loan schemes, separate interest rates for people of different racial categories uh, at, at other banks. We're contemplating this type of type of thing. And you think like, wait a minute, this is radical left race based Marxist ideology that is now inside the Bank of America and other large co- corporations, you know, uh, uh, credit card companies even. This is crazy. What's happening? But what I looked into and I found, I think really for the, for the first time it's been exposed in, in the book, is that the origin of these so-called racial sensitivity programs, uh, racial consciousness programs, now called diversity, equity, and inclusion programs, the actual origins, the woman who developed these programs at a large scale in the beginning, in the, the 1970s and into the 1980s, was the third wife of the Marxist philosopher Herbert Marcuse, the godfather of this revolutionary Mm. left. And Mm -hmm. she did her thesis on Marxist ideology as a graduate student, and her idea was, we're gonna take the core Marxist ideas, filter them through the lens of race, and then take them into corporations to start re-engineering consciousness, re-engineering manners and mores and 
cultural habits to create a fertile ground for then overthrowing the existing capitalist order. And so, you know, when you actually look into the history, it starts to say, wait a minute, this idea that we're just promoting diversity and inclusion is totally false. The origins of these programs betray uh, a totally different world. Um, and, and, and they also betray this really insidious and sophisticated campaign that I trace decade by decade by decade to take these core ideologies and then push them in, into the institutions using euphemism, using misdirection, using obfuscation to try to change the consciousness of you in the workplace, to try to change the consciousness of your kids in the classroom, and even kind of very, very kind of surprisingly to me, uh, even trying to change your consciousness in your place of worship. There's no institutions that's safe, that are safe. Um, and that's really what I try to demonstrate uh, using the historical record. So they uh, tried to change the consciousness of America by using these euphemisms, changing the language, but it sounds like they were also changing the conscience of America. So it's moral manipulation. It's kind of emotional extortion playing upon, I think, the natural goodness of a lot of Americans to want to you know, fight for equality and to fight for people who seem vulnerable, who don't have the same rights as they do. And so I could see how you find fertile soil, not just in the open minds of academics, but in maybe the truly empathetic hearts of the American people, people in institutions, corporations, whatever, um, and in churches, especially, as you said. But then, and because I do want to get to the church part, but then for the corporations like Bank of America, for the rest of these institutions like academia, it becomes not only acceptable, but actually like politically necessary and financially extremely lucrative. So it went from something that was French to something that, okay, maybe you can accept these kind of radical concepts of race and equality and Marxism and stuff to now you absolutely have to, or your business will fail, or you won't be able to survive as a university or else that's what they think anyway. I mean, you saw that with the outcry from the Supreme Court decision about affirmative action. So how did that happen? How did it go from, okay, we're kind of ruminating on these ideas to, oh my gosh, if you think anything else besides the Marxist view of race and equity, then you are completely outside of what is normal and right. It's a really interesting progression and really a political technique that they've mastered. Um, and, and even conservatives seem to be powerless uh, to, to resist it, I think in some sense because they don't know that it's happening. But the technique is, is a two-part technique. The first part is to get into an institution, gain a beachhead, get you a few people in there, and then plead for tolerance, openness, pluralism, acceptance, inclusivity. So they preach these very open, um, uh, tolerant, empathetic values to gain uh, entry or access into the institution. And in a sense that, that they're, they're right. I mean, these are good values to have in and of themselves. You wanna be tolerant and empathetic and understanding of other people, all things being equal. Um, but that's really the, just the first part because once they get in, preaching relativism, tolerance, et cetera. The second step is to start then, once they have power, once they've gained a critical mass, then to start enforcing, start to requiring, start to uh, um, uh, uh, really um, mandate these values in the workplace, where if there's any deviation from these values, now that is unacceptable. And so it's really a, a strategy of seeking tolerance from, from their enemies and then imposing 
coercion on those same people when the time comes. And so conservatives have to get much smarter with this. You know, be, well, yeah, you know, diversity and inclusion, that sounds great. You know, they just want to teach tolerance. Um, I mean, if that were truly the case, there's, a, there's an argument for it. But then conservatives find themselves, oh, wow, now I'm in, you know, racial re-education camp and I have to write a white privilege letter and apologize to my colleagues and uh, I pay now a different interest rate on my credit card uh, because of my ancestry. I mean, things can right. go in that direction quite quickly. Um, and so we have to be on guard. And I think that Americans are particularly susceptible to uh, idealistic thinking, to the uh, guilt emotions. American Protestants, um, certainly uh, their guilt can be played you know, like a fiddle sometimes. Um, and then also, um, especially among, uh, you know, frankly, among bureaucracies that have large numbers of female employees, uh, you see empathy um, as a good mm -hmm. virtue being hijacked for, for, for bad ends. So in a sense, it's exploiting the natural feminine empathy, that good quality. Um, and so with yeah. those emotions, with those vulnerabilities, uh, they, can, they, can, they can do a lot of damage. They can, they can really hijack institutions quickly. Yes, that's what my next book is on, is the danger of the empathy extortion that we kind of see, especially among women. And I saw that especially in the summer of 2020. And you mentioned the church. I'm talking mostly like Christian women who would say that they are conservative, like they would say that they're pro-life. They would certainly not call themselves a Marxist. And if they read, for example, like Angela Davis's ideas, they would say, oh my gosh, no, I don't <laughs> believe that. That's too radical. And yet they were the ones posting the black squares. They were the ones tying your morality to um, you know, reading white fragility and admitting that systemic racism and prolonged white supremacy are, you know, central problems in American life and that we have to do the work and we have to um, educate ourselves and sit down and shut up if you're white, basically. It was <laughs> particularly white Christian women that I saw spearheading what quite frankly is like Marxist propaganda that has been like washed over with Christian language in the summer of 2020. I mean, when you were researching this, did you see that that was part of the acceleration over the past few years that the evangelical church or just, I guess the church in general has now played a big part in kind of pushing this stuff? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you're exactly right in your analysis. I think that's, that's very well said. And, and, and I think that it's, Look, all of these movements, they have a vanguard and they have a mass. And so the vanguard of this movement, the BLM activists, are radical atheists. They're, um, you know, kind of Marxist theoreticians. They're, you know, really street fighters. They encourage street violence in order to achieve their political ends. And all of these, you would think, you know, Marxist atheists, you know, violent revolutionaries would not be able to gain a foothold in you know, uh, a kind of suburban, middle class, you know, evangelical or, or Protestant or even some Catholic um, churches. But, but they did something, I think, really interesting. They had sophisticated marketing. And so it was almost like a, a product or a lifestyle brand for a br brief moment in 2020. There was a sense that everyone was copying each other in order to be more pure, to be more good, to be more idealistic, to be more supportive. Um, you see the proliferation of the different symbols of the ideology that were really rapidly shifting. And so there's a natural inclination to jump on trend. Um, certainly on a place like Instagram is built on these trend cycles. 
they were able to hijack the aesthetic sense so that it actually mm -hmm. it felt and appeared that they were for good, for justice, for equality. Um, and, and I think they, they, you know, frankly, tricked a lot of people. The good news, though, is that many of the people who were swept up in the fervor of 2020 have since reevaluated. And I saw even a yes. news clip the other day, maybe a day or two ago, the, the Seattle City Councilman that represents uh, downtown Seattle, who was all about defunding the police in 2020, is now up for re-election, and he's putting out glossy mailers that's saying, I, I love the police, we need to fully fund the police, I've always supported the police. A total lie, <laughs> but it shows you how much public opinion has really shifted. And so the good news that I try to get to in the book is not just doom and gloom, it's not just the conquest of the institutions, but also how to fight back, how the America's cultural revolution can be met with an equal or greater counter-revolution. And I argue that the antidote to the revolution of 2020, to the revolution of, 20, of, of 1968, is the revolution of 1776. And if we go back to those founding American principles of liberty, equality, equal protection under the law, um, we can actually get the country working again, get the country uh, on the moral high ground, and get the country uh, successful as it should be. And so, um, you know, I, I, I'm just really excited about the book's launch. I encourage all your viewers uh, to purchase a copy and, um, and, and, and start reading and start learning. Okay, another pause to tell you guys about CrowdHealth. So CrowdHealth is not health insurance. It's a different and an even better way to cover your healthcare needs. It gives you the tools to negotiate and then to crowdfund your medical bills. So what you do is you pay a $50 membership fee to get access to services like telemedicine, bill negotiation, and then you join the crowd, which is a group of members just like you who want to help pay for each other's unexpected medical events. So that membership fee is what is being contributed to uh, the pot that then covers people's uh, medical needs. And I mean, this is really what coverage should look like. It's uh, It gets rid of the red tape and the bureaucracy and all of the conflicting policies and regulations, the complications that come with typical health insurance. All of you guys have experienced that and it just makes it really easy. And this is just like a community centered way to alleviating each other's burdens. The people who run CrowdHealth, they're really great people. They're just passionate about this, about simplifying your healthcare coverage. So go to joincrowdhealth.com. Use code Ally at checkout. That's joincrowdhealth.com, code Ally. CrowdHealth is not insurance. Learn more at joincrowdhealth.com. Certainly people have kind of shifted over the past few years as we've seen the implementation of a lot of these radical ideas um, in cities. And so we've seen their tangible results. There's not a city that is run by Democrats that has gotten better or even stayed the same over the past five years or the past few years since 2020. I mean, people are leaving those cities, no matter your ethnicity, no matter your socioeconomic class, if you can, because no one wants to live in a society based on anarchy. No one wants to live in a policeless, law enforcement-less society. I mean, we were told that these forms of quote-unquote liberation would lead to equality and happiness and justice. But I think what we're realizing is that 
when these leftist radicals use these words, equality, liberation, justice, as you said, these euphemisms that people latch onto because who wants to be anti-equality? Um, they mean totally different things than we do, right? And so I think even like racism or oppression or marginalization, all of these things that you want to be against, they mean something totally different. And I think you're right. I think some people are waking up to, oh, what I thought was moral is actually really destructive. That's right. And, and the history is really interesting. I think it's important to keep in mind that, <clears throat> of course, in the United States, look, we had slavery, we had segregation. Those were both moral evils that needed to be uh, abolished, to, tr to be transcended. But all of these revolutionary movements started in 1968, 1969, a few years after the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And so by 1968, there was full legal equality for everyone in the United States. Um, and of course, there's still a legacy of some of those historical processes. Um, but it's a very curious thing that the most violent political revolutions of the modern period happened after the achievement of equality. And even if you look at 2020, we've had equal rights in this country for you know, more than 50 years, a half century. Um, but those ideas of systemic racism and oppression, et cetera, are still vibrant, but they've shifted a little bit. Now it's psychological, subconscious, implicit bias. Um, so they have to keep adapting their argument to, because I think that the ultimate paradox for these movements is that we have a system of equal rights and protections. The government does not discriminate against anyone um, except for, in the case of admissions, hiring, et cetera, against uh, whites and Asians, especially white and Asian men. But even if you put that aside as kind of a minor uh, issue, affirmative action, which, of course, I oppose. But even if you put that aside, uh, this is a revolution at the end of the process of political equality. And I think that there's a deep disillusionment and disappointment, which leads them to even more radical solutions. Maybe we'll have equality if we get rid of the police. I mean, it's like... Are you people insane? There's, there's no, uh, it, it, you get a sense of desperation. And when people are desperate and idealistic, that's when you get chaos. That's when you get bad ideas coming to the fore. And so we have to be on guard against these ideas. We have to dig into the true nature of them. And we have to understand the unintended consequences that come uh, from policies driven by revolutionary fervor. Yeah. And I just have one or two more questions. One thing that I think is really interesting that you point out, um, is how Minneapolis kind of came the epicenter of a lot of this stuff. And it's not even the city. Like, if you look at the cities with, like, the highest concentration of black Americans, um, Minneapolis is, I mean, it's up there, but it's not one of the top. Why is it Minneapolis? Why did Minneapolis become so central to this revolution? Well, I, I mean, first, I think because it was at first a localized revolution af in the aftermath of the death of George, George Floyd. Floyd. Right. Um, you know, so uh, that was the central focus. And then it kind of parachuted out into other cities and you saw it spread. But the, the point about Minneapolis actually holds even truer if you look at cities like Seattle and Portland. I profile both of those cities uh, in the book. And Seattle and Portland are, are quite literally the whitest big cities in America. They have the fewest... Uh, African-Americans, largely because they're really far. You know, I'm up in the Seattle area, uh, actually between Seattle and Portland. Uh, um, and uh, and it's just far from the deep south. So as people were moving um, during the Great Migration in the earlier part of the, earlier part of the 20th century, 
um, you know, it, it, you'd have to cross over a tremendous amount of territory. But and, and yet it was the site of the most violent and extreme protest riots, et cetera. You had the, the Chaz Chop Autonomous Zone in Seattle. You had more than 100 nights of rioting, the siege of the federal courthouse in Portland from Antifa. And so there's an interesting dynamic that's actually a dynamic that's been there since the 1960s, is that you have kind of elite white intelligentsia making common cause with the urban African-American um, underclass. And that was the language that they used back in the 1960s. I think that's still the dynamic today, so that you have the kind of bleeding New York Times intelligentsia, you know, based in the hipster neighborhoods of New York and, and San Francisco and Seattle, leading the intellectual charge. And then, of course, you have in the predominantly African-American neighborhoods where the most violent uh, rioting was occurring. Um, and so you have this very interesting alliance of forces. And they believed in the 1960s that that was a revolutionary combination. Um, it didn't work out then. It didn't work out now. Um, but that's the basis of their political theory and their political action. They have the kind of intelligentsia uh, kind of leading the ideological fight. And then they have the threat of violence coming from the inner city um, that is putting political pressure, putting physical pressure uh, on voters. And, and, and look, I think it actually worked to the, to the extent in 2020 that um, they put so much pressure around the election. You probably remember this, although many people have forgotten. I know you wouldn't have forgotten. They said, and, the, and cities were gearing up for this, they were boarding up in, in anticipation for the election. If Trump wins, we burn the whole country down. They, they played a game of extortion and moral blackmail. And I think that actually had uh, some impact in, in, on people's votes where the average voter said, you know what, this is too stressful. I'm just gonna vote for Biden just to avoid the violence. And so, um, it's a nice interplay. Sometimes they're winning, sometimes they're losing. It's, it's, it's pretty fascinating. But uh, ultimately, yeah. I think uh, there's nothing here. It's an empty ideology. Okay, so there's talk of a recession, the instability of the economy. I mean, there are so many things that are unknown that look really turbulent and scary. One of the best things that we can do for our family and our finances is to make sure that we are diversifying some of our savings into gold, into a physical asset that is independent from the U.S. dollar. And the best company I think to work with to do that is Birch Gold Group. They've got thousands and thousands of very happy customers. They've got an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, and they can help you diversify some of your savings into gold just to make sure that your savings are protected in this very turbulent time. If you want to learn more about this, they've got a no-obligation info kit that you can get by texting Allie to 989-898. That's Allie to 989-898 for that free info kit on gold. Allie to 989-898. You know, I know people who, even though over the past couple of years, they have learned that maybe some of the things that they believed or said in 2020 aren't exactly true, that systemic racism and oppression may not be the reason for some of the disparities that we see between the races, or maybe some of the things that they ascribe to racism, they're realizing, you know, shouldn't be ascribed to racism, or they just believed that things like white fragility and Ibram X. Kendi, that these were good you know, works that they should be reading. They've realized it since, but they still don't want to admit it. 
Because look, it's more <laughs> difficult to admit that you're wrong or to even admit to yourself that you're wrong. I think a lot of these, especially Christian women, they don't even want to say to themselves that, hey, maybe the reason for some of these disparities or some of the outcomes that we see among black Americans doesn't have to do with white supremacy. That's an uncomfortable place to go because then you have to explore different questions of like, why is it? What is affecting it? And it's just not convenient for most white people to go there, to ask those questions. It's like dangerous, scary, unpopular, controversial territory. And so I think some people want to stay in a state of denial because it's just easier to regurgitate the propaganda about race than it is to be someone to say, uh, I don't know, that's not necessarily true. I mean, you have to, you have to potentially sacrifice your job and your safety and um, your comfort and all of that to push back against what has become such a ubiquitous narrative today that white supremacy is this pervasive force that's holding everyone down. Yeah, that's that's 100% right. And, and that's the true of the dynamic in any propaganda-based society, whether it's the old Soviet Union uh, nations or whether it's here in the United States where we have a kind of state private propaganda apparatus that enforces this orthodoxy. But the good news is that I think it's weakening. Um, and then the other piece of good news is that we now, we now can arm ourselves with the arguments, the evidence, the rhetoric, the persuasion, and the language in order to make a different case. And that starts with people like you and me. Uh, we're in the public sphere. We're in some ways more immune than the average citizen from the dynamics of, 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 of kind of mobbing or going after our jobs. After all, we are in politics. So uh, this is part of our job description. But we, we have to speak out with a clear, uh, deliberate, and, and fearless voice. We have to say, this is the truth, this is how it is, and then that will create space for other people to start um, you know, learning from us, but also it will give them the, the ammunition that they need to then go back to their local institutions and put their, uh, and put their two cents in. And so I would say that it, it, we have to have courage. And, and in, in politics, often, the winner is not the person with the best idea, it's not the best uh, human being, but the person who's, uh, who cares the most, who works the hardest, who wants to achieve their goals and is really to make a sacrifice toward that end. And conservatives, frankly, um, in, in, in our kind of local institutions and mid-sized institutions have not been doing that. They've been saying, well, you know, I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to get in there. I don't want to risk this. I have you know, this to, to think about. If that's our attitude, we're going to lose. Um, but if we have enough people standing up, enough people speaking out, enough people that have uh, good, persuasive, reasoned, compassionate uh, uh, lines of argument that they can make. Um, they have good people skills. They know not how to alienate uh, their, their friends and colleagues and family members. That's when the, the truth starts to win. That's when the story that we're telling starts to win. And I think that it's really important for people to feel that confidence that they need, to understand the history, to understand the origins, to have the facts, to have the lines of argument. And so that was really... Yeah. What I try to do in the book is give people that sense of confidence that once they read the book, once they know the history, they can go out there and say, you know what, um, DEI is, is, is based on a lie. And this is why and have something powerful to say. Yes. Understanding where ideas come from really is so important and confidence inducing, I think. And something that I say that I remember you saying a few years ago is that courage begets courage. And like, 
as someone having the courage to stand up and say, you know what, I know DEI is popular. I know that it's something that's being presented as tolerance and empathy and love and compassion, but here's the truth about it. Um, that really can have a domino effect. I think that you've seen that in your own work, but I'm sure in your work, you've also seen that at universities, at places of work, in different communities and churches, when someone is willing to stand up because they are empowered by the education that you provide in this book and say, no, you're misunderstanding what this is. You're hearing euphemisms, but here's what this really means and why it's destructive. That can make a difference. Not everyone has to be focused on writing the next bestseller or running for office or helping start a new university like you have, which is amazing, but everyone can do something. And that starts with being courageous and saying what is unpopular, but true. So thank you for giving us a handbook for how to do that and really giving us so much confidence in all the education that you're providing in this, just to give us context to really understand what's going on. Um, like you said, it's already number one, so people can get it on Amazon. Is there anywhere else that you want to direct people um, to buy the book, to share about the book, or the work that you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, go on Amazon, go on Barnes & Noble, go on any website where books are sold. Um, buy a copy of the book. It's officially out uh, tomorrow, uh, but you can pre-order a copy today and be the first to read it. Um, I think this is going to set the narrative for conservatives moving forward. You're going to see the story told in this book really be the story of the conservative presidential primaries. And so I would say right now, uh, go to your computer, order the book. You'll get it in a couple days. Um, and I appreciate your support. Thanks so much, Chris. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.